Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome, as always, to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today, I'm always very, very happy to be joined by uh, one of the all-time greats, and that's Carl Erske, pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. How you doing, Carl? Hey there. Well, you know, I'm still alive and kicking, and uh, wonderful to visit about the days I think about a lot. I'm still... uh, I'm still like a kid when I think about my days in Brooklyn, and I was very young, playing with a young team, and a team that was about to gel and uh, start winning some pennants and and finally a World Series. And uh, so, it's, uh, Sam, this many time, uh, long time in my life away from those days, they never are far away in my memory. And we're happy to hear all about them. And before we get into everything that we're going to get into regarding Brooklyn and specifically pitching today, um, uh, of course, yesterday was September 11th, and uh, we've all remembered uh, that horrible day. You have some interesting uh, stories you've told on the podcast about, excuse me, about Brooklyn and 9/11. Well, you know, I was at home here in Indiana with my wife, getting up that morning, and. Uh, uh, we were in a bedroom where we have a TV, and we're getting, kind of getting dressed and getting ready for the day. And and I'm watching, and this plane hits the tower. And, and, and first, of course, everybody thought it was a, a, a wild accident that some crazy pilot had uh, flown there and flown into the building. But as we watched that and heard Brian Gumbel uh, describing it on the Today Show uh, and wondering uh, why would somebody crazy enough to fly in downtown Manhattan and hit a building, a second plane appeared, and then it was obvious this was deliberate, and we were being attacked. Boy, that was something. But with Brooklyn, Brooklyn was very historically involved in that event because all the firehouses were closest in lower Manhattan. The firehouses in Brooklyn were the closest first responders, and so they went quickly to the scene, and then when the day was done, they had lost over 300 firemen, and uh, there's a wall in the out at, uh, at Coney Island where the uh, where the Cyclones play, the minor league team. But there's a wall of fame out there. It's a beautiful idea. It has a picture, an eight by ten picture of every fireman who was killed, and this this was the brass, the top guys, all the way down through the ranks. Uh, were lost. And here's a picture. You don't see a name only. You see the face of this person who gave their life at 9-11. It's, it's very, very emotional. Well, a friend of mine was a chaplain in our uh, police department here in, in Indiana, in Anderson, Indiana. But he's from Brooklyn. And he went back to do counseling uh, for some of the firehouses uh, after this, uh, so, several days following and I sent with him a book I had written called Tales from the Dodger Dugout. Now, I had several copies, and I, I packed them up and gave them to him. So he distributed them in the firehouses uh, at Brooklyn, told him. And a lot of guys, you know, were third, fourth-generation uh, firemen. And uh, they knew their grandfather had watched uh, Evans Field when I played, and, or their father, or taken them when they were very small, if they were in their 50s or so. And so this connection unintentionally uh, 
to get any benefits out of it. I was just trying to do my little part uh, in this tragic event. But now the firemen in Brooklyn, they call me and say, look, when you come to New York, don't you take a car, don't rent a cab, don't, we, we got you. And you tell us when you're coming in. Well, when I go to New York now, I, if I, have a, I hate to lean on that, but these guys say, hey, listen, you're going to make us mad if you don't call us. And so the firemen <laughs> in New York and Brooklyn, they can't wait for me to come in. And then they say, where do you need to go? Well, they take me wherever, and uh, they've taken me back to Bay Ridge where I lived during the years uh, with Pee Wee and Duke and, and Rube Walker and uh, Preacher Rowe. We all lived out in that section. So anyway, uh, this Brooklyn connection has been fabulous. And I'll tell you what, I could have signed with five or six teams when I was a kid and uh, being scouted, but I was drawn to the Dodgers, and I can't explain it exactly. Except they scouted me in high school, but uh, but that connection in Brooklyn is fabulous, and and it doesn't go away. It just it kind of keeps getting richer. And and I'm glad it does. And uh, to enhance that richness, um, let's let's get into pitching uh, because it's something that I, I think that um, from the uh, television show perspective, just trying to find the details of of um, you know what this show could be. Uh, pitching is certainly something that you want to delve deep into. So uh, let me start with the broad. What, what, what was your overall philosophy on pitching, and, and how would you adjust it from batter to batter? Well, you know, pitching is actually a defensive position. You, you don't always say it that way or maybe think about it that way, but it is. It's, you're on defense. When, when you're on the field and, and you have the ball in your hand uh, and your team's all out there with you, you're actually on defense. But I often explain to young pitchers, uh, even among my own peers, uh, talking about being on the mound, you, have, you must have a, an offensive uh, mentality. Like, I'm in charge. Uh, I, this is my ball game. Uh, You've you got to deal with me. I think that's the ideal mindset for a young pitcher. Uh, most of the time it's easy to be on defensive, field defensive, like, oh, I hope I get this guy out. Oh, gee whiz, I hope I don't make a bad pitch. Well, you got to erase that kind of thinking. And, and, you, and I always admired two pitchers in my era. Allie Reynolds of the Yankees was a take-charge pitcher. When he walked out to the mound, there was no question who was in charge. In the National League, it was Sal Magley. When Sal Magley walked out, as much as we hated Sal Magley of the Giants, I had great admiration for Sal Magley because he was a take-charge pitcher. And when he mm-hmm. walked out there, there was no question who had the ball, who had who had control of the game. Um, I was kind of a shy kid, and I needed that. I needed that, and I, I got that from... There were others, too. Robin Roberts was a, was a fantastic take-charge pitcher uh, with the Phillies. But I admired that in a pitcher because that's the mindset that makes you the best pitcher. And even though the catcher calls the signs, that's only because he can, he can protect them from anybody seeing the signs. But, but technically, the pitcher calls his game, and, and he can shake the, the catcher off 
normally it's a case of working together. You've, you've gone over the hitters, and you're kind of thinking alike. In fact, uh, there was a time pitching to Roy Campanella. I pitched against with Roy well over a thousand innings, and it got so we were in the league together so long. We faced the same hitters over and over again. It got so we didn't almost need, didn't need any signs hmm. because we knew what our best strategy was. But anyway, uh, so pitching, back to my first comment, when you walk out on the mound, you, you don't want to, you can help it, you got to work on it. You don't want to be on your, back on your heels and, and kind of uh, feel like, oh boy, I hope I, hope I get this guy out. Uh, you got to go after the guy like he, I, you own the batter. And uh, you got the ball, and nothing happens until you, you make that pitch. So I, that's a main component of teaching pitchers is the mindset when you walk mm-hmm. out there. Right, exactly. So, so getting to specifics, uh, well, let's let's um, I take a scenario of of uh, two batters you'd face back to back, or even three batters you'd face back to back in the day. So, let's say you were facing the Giants um, and um, the leadoff hitter. Who, who would generally be leading off for the Giants? Well, they had a variety of lineups, so it was it was uh, they had a little a little infielder uh, uh, played to third base. Uh, okay, I got to reach here for my names. <laughs> no, I'm I'm actually I'm I'm trying I'm going to look up the 1953 New York Giants and, and find a yeah. first and see what yeah, weather we can. Uh... Yeah, you know, because I yeah, they had some outstanding hitters in there. Lockman was a very good hitter. He hit up early in the lineup. Uh, Willie Mays hit third always, mm. and uh, well, we we take a scorecard and right. look who's who's in the lineup today, and then the pitcher of the day, the guy that's going to start, uh, goes over the lineup and he says, you know, here's here's how I'm going to pitch to Mays. Uh, we never did figure that out really, but really, <laughs> 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 but here's how we're going to try to pitch to Mays. Uh, I learned I learned late in my career that you could pitch Mays inside. Um, he loved to get his arms out and hit the ball uh, to the opposite field. But um, anyway, that was a process that uh, we took. Uh, took well, I'll, I'll pick another team because I remember the lineup so well because okay. it hardly ever changed. But the Cardinals had, had uh, Red Shandies leading off. Now, Red Shandies was a switch hitter, so he hit left-handed against me. And you had to keep the ball in on red. Red likes to lean out over the plate and so on. So the medicine that we thought was best for him was the crowding. And and um, and I had a good hard overhand curveball, so that was good on left-handed hitters especially. But uh, So I got uh, him out exceptionally well. And then the second guy in the lineup was Eno Slaughter. And Eno Slaughter was a, a Hall of Famer as well as Shandy's Hall of Famer. And you... Uh, you made uh, pitches to slaughter uh, on the basis of how he was standing. He moved around a little bit in the batter's box. So you had to kind of watch where he was at. Uh, my take on that was he he guessed a little bit about uh, what was coming. But my overhand fastball was had a little rise to it. And uh, I could get that ball uh, up and in on him and, and get it by him. So I got him out very well, which proved the advice I got from Hugh Casey, an older pitcher when I joined the team, 
Mm-hmm. He gave me some advice on pitching. He said, look, there are guys in this league, like Musial, is going to hit 330, 340 every year. He said, I never saw you pitch. I don't know if you throw overhand, sidearm, or I don't know how you throw the ball. But let me tell you, son, they're going to hit you too. <laughs> the 330 hitters, the 340 hitters, they hit everybody in the leg. That's what they do. So you can count on giving up hits to these good hitters. Well, here's, here's my advice. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, here's my advice, he said. Bear down, guys ahead of a good hitter. A lot of times the pitcher says, you know, oh, here comes the big hitter. i got to bear down. Casey says, look, before the big hitter comes, you bear down on the guys ahead of him. Keep them off the base. And then when the big hitter's up, he got nobody to drive in. Boy, that was fantastic advice. And that's what I did. I, I worked tough on the guys ahead of Mays or Musial or, or Clemente, whoever. And um, great advice. Absolutely. And I, I went to a game um the Dodgers and the Cardinals, uh, May 6th, 1953. And it's a, uh, a game that you pitched a complete game, giving up three runs, um, striking out nine. And what's interesting about this is, as you were saying that, I noticed that in this game, uh, Stan Musial went 0 for 4 with, uh, against you. And it looks like, you know, in Stan Musial terms, he, he started the year a little poor, uh, batting 281. <laughs> well, yeah, anybody... Today, that'd be a big number, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, I, I would was, take 281 from, from a hitter on, uh, from a Mets hitter on May 6th. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you ever got Musial over four, you, you've had an exceptional day, especially if it was in Evans Field. I think he hit close to 400 in Evans Field uh, over time. And, uh, but he hit to all fields, and uh, opposite pitching now, I'm going to mention a hitting. The, the greatest uh, advice you can give to a hitter is make contact. You've got to get the bat on the ball, and Musial was really tough to get a third strike past him. Now, I happen to know that I faced Musial 164 times because a, a stats guy told me that when Stan died a few months ago. He called and said, you faced Musial more than any other hitter in your 12-year career. You faced him 164 times. And Musial, I only struck him out four times in 164 times at bat. You could hardly strike Musial out. He always got contact, and he might hit three line drive base hits and then a bloop single. He'd be four for four. But he always made the ball move someplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a tough hitter to get out. And you got him out once, one of those strikeouts. Uh, was in this game on May 6, 1953. Now, what's interesting about this game is that it says that it was protested by the visiting team. Do you have any memory as to why the Cardinals protested this game? I do not. I do not remember that. That was rare. It was rare to have a protest. And, you know, you can't protest a decision. You can't protest a judgment call. You can only protest a rule uh, violation. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of plays that people object to. They think the umpire missed it, but you can't file a protest. So if a protest was filed against Dodgers that day, it had to be uh, somebody felt like uh, the manager of the other team, Cardinals, 
uh, thought it was a, a, a rule violation. Mm. Uh, but I, I do not recall that specific incident. Okay. Okay. Um, I was looking at some of these, uh, these games, and I went to an August 11, 1953 game in the Polo Grounds. Uh, it, you went, it, it took you to 13-5 uh, on the year. You faced Sal Magley. Uh, he lost. He, he took the loss. Um, going to the New York Giants, so, so let's say uh, in this game, Whitey Lockman led off. Al Dark uh, was third, and Don Mueller was, was third. Uh, I'm sorry, Al Dark was second, and Don Mueller was third. So how would you approach this lineup uh, coming up to Hank Thompson and Bobby Thompson? Well, the polar grounds, of course, was very, very short down each line, barely 300 feet down, down right field and, and left field. But it went out fast, and the outfield was big as an airport. I mean, you could, <laughs> that's why Mays was such a great outfielder. He had so much room out there that he ran these balls down. Uh, I don't know what it would be, 500 feet at least uh, to the – center field, there was none, it wasn't even a fence there, it was a clubhouse was built in center field, and but it was way out there. Now, Duke Snyder, by contrast, playing in Evansville, uh, he didn't have much room. The outfield was much smaller in Evansville, and uh, Mantle or uh, any center fielder at Yankee Stadium, they also had big outfield space to, to roam. But the polo grounds in pitching there, the thing you tried to do was to keep the hitter from pulling the ball down either line because it was uh, it was real short, and so you let them hit these long drives to the outfield, and uh, and the outfielders had plenty of room to to get under. And that's about the only adjustment I made. Polo grounds was mm-hmm. uh, trying to keep the uh, hitter from getting a pitch he could uh, he could pull, but uh, other than that, I pitched just about the same at the polo grounds as as anywhere else. Um, I thought you were going to mention a game at the Polar Ground in which uh, I pitched a two-hitter that night, and Hank Thompson, hit. he got two, two hits. It's the only two hits that the Giants got. They were both bloop singles, almost in the same spot, and they barely got to the outfield. But um, And they were both on off-speed pitches. He was out in front of me, hit it off the end of the bat, and uh, but uh, just a bloop. And, uh, but that was... Uh, <laughs> That was a, a two hitter that night. That uh, the two hits were were about as, we could used to call them dying quail. It was like mm. he shot a bird out of the sky and and he fell. But anyway, so I have a lot of memories of the polo grounds. Yeah, and, and in this game, um, it took you guys to seventy two and thirty seven. You had won four in a row uh, in first place, of course, and the Giants who had lost four in a row. Um, went 17 and a half games behind you guys at 53 and 53, uh, even even Steven, as they say. Um, and, yeah, you know, right here on the box score, there's Hank Thompson, two for four, all, the only one yeah. to have hits in this game. And um, Well, that was a game. Yeah, yeah, and he was yeah, batting yeah, three. Yeah, it was a night game. Right. Yeah, exactly. And 45,604 uh, in a two, two hours and 44 minutes saw you. Uh, saw you pitch. Um, here, here's my next question. What do you think the bi- biggest difference between pitching in your era and pitching in, in the majors currently? What, what, what is that? Bi- what's the biggest difference? All right. You know, that's, that's really, that is really a question that has a broad amount of 
conversation. Uh, nothing's changed in terms of the rules of the game much uh, from pitching, except over time there has been an adjustment in the strike zone, and I get I get very upset with the old strike zone I pitched to is gone. The new strike zone is now at least eight, ten inches, at least that, low, uh, lower. Um, if they'd shortened first base as much as they've lowered the strike zone, there'd be an outcry that uh, the record book's going to be spoiled. But they, uh, there's no way to get the answer to this. Uh, I've talked to umpires. Uh, I talked to Commissioner of Baseball, uh, uh, Mr. Seelig, uh, and there's there's a vague uh, response about uh, the lowering of the strike zone. But uh, the high strike was always the controversial pitch. As from the bench, you can see whether a ball is high or low. You can't always see whether it's over the plate or not. But but the the high fastball is the hardest pitch to hit normally. And uh, so the hitter... If he lays off of it and it's up above the letters, that's that's an obvious uh, out of the strike zone. But if an umpire happens to call that pitch a strike, oh man, the bench uh, erupts. So that's a, a one of the reasons they say that the strike zone has come down is because the umpire is sensitive to making any high call and uh, to keep the bench off his back. Mm-hmm. But I have another theory. When baseball expanded from uh, 16 teams, eight teams in each league, when it expanded to what has now become uh, 15 in each league, uh, or 30 total games, total uh, teams, um, to fill those rosters and to keep the best players available uh, uh, at that level, uh, I think there are hitters now in the major leagues if they had to hit at the old strike zone, which was under the letters to the top of the knees, uh, which now it's a belt, barely the belt for the knees, uh, if, the, if there's, there's a certain level of hitter in the National League, American League now, if they had to hit at the old strike zone, which meant that the high strike was a strike, uh, high pitch was a strike, I don't think they'd hit uh, 110. I mean, I think it, and I think Baseball has deliberately tweaked the strike zone to keep more offense in the game. And there's a lot of factors that I could cite. One of them is opposite field home runs. You used to see one occasionally. Now, opposite field home runs are routine. That's because the strike zone is low. And all the pitches that the hitter gets to hit at are down in those power zones. And also, uh, the fact that he doesn't have to protect from a high strike he goes after the low outside pitch easier. That used to be the out pitch. Well, that's one of the big changes to me in baseball and, and pitching. Now, I'm an old-timer, and I, I haven't thrown a baseball in the major leagues since 1960, or at least that was my first year out. Uh, I don't want to claim I know everything about baseball today. But what I do know is <clears throat> one of the major differences in my era and the 100 years before that in in baseball, the pitching coaches on major league uh, staff uh, were always catchers, believe it or not. For 100 years at least, the coaching staffs on the major league teams 
the pitching coach, designated pitching coach, was a catcher. I had four pitching coaches in my career. They were all catchers. <laughs> now, why would you have a catcher coaching pitchers? Why wouldn't you have pitchers coaching pitchers? Well, that's what they do today. They have now the, the most important guy on the bench, other than the manager, and in some cases maybe he's more important than the manager, is the pitching coach who handles the pitching staff and who advises the manager who's ready and, and who, who can face this hitter best. And that demands a bigger salary than any other coach now because the pitching coach, being a former pitcher, is actually in charge of the pitching staff. Now, that didn't happen in my day. Um, the last pitching coach I had was Joe Becker, and he was an old-time catcher. Now, why would that be uh, ever the idea that a catcher ought to be a coach? He handles the pitches. He knows whether the fastball's moving, whether the curveball's lazy, uh, and he tells the manager, this guy's uh, stuff's not there today. And so the manager goes into the game knowing that this guy's not quite as good as he might be. But the, I don't know of any other reason why catchers were pitching coaches because they could not go down to the other end on the mound and say, look, you're overstriding or you're dropping your arm down or you're, uh, it looks like you're holding the ball wrong because the rotation's not there. I, a lot of things that the pitcher would know that the catcher uh, couldn't help him with. But that's a major change in baseball, that now the pitching coaches are former pitchers. And for 100 years at least in baseball, the uh, pitching coaches were catchers. I don't think anybody knows that. I don't think anybody yeah. realizes I never hear uh, I, broadcasters. I, I don't think broadcasters ever mention it. But it's a matter of fact that uh, that's been one of the major differences now. Since pitching coaches have become pitch, former pitchers, we have something new in baseball, the pitch count. They never counted pitches. Uh, that meant anything for – we used to know a guy threw a lot of pitches, but, uh, but we never had a pitch count. And you turn to the ninth inning of a ball game, the score's tied. The manager never thought about taking you out because you'd thrown, already thrown nine innings of pitches. If you're pitching well, you're in for the 10th inning, 11th inning. Um, I pitched a game in the World Series and went 11 innings. <laughs> and uh, Dressen left me in the whole 11 innings. Who would who would ever dream of that doing that today? <clears throat> Nobody knew how many pitches I threw. In fact, I threw so many that I broke a blister on my finger that day. <laughs> but but, uh, but that's a major difference in, in how pitching staffs are handled. Now, the complete game, that was our – that was the ultimate to pitch a game and finish it. And the theory always was you save the bullpen. And sometimes in a tough stretch when you're, you can't get the sides out and you're using a lot of pitchers, uh, the whole staff gets tired. But uh, if you can get a complete game in there and rest the staff, that was an ultimate good thing. It, uh, so, But now... Um, that stat doesn't even exist, hardly, complete games. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not intended. Uh, we had a no-hitter this year pitched by four pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Four pitchers pitched a no-hitter. And, and um, I think it was the Phillies. And uh, that's the way now. 
so pitchers now have become more specialized. You got starters, middle relievers, closers, setup men. Those terms weren't even around. Uh, we had relievers, but starters relieved in my day. Uh, in between starts, if the manager felt like he needed you for one inning or to get a couple guys out, you'd you'd pitch and pitch on the day that you did your throwing. In between starts, and uh, so that probably never happens anymore. But I, I but, think they still I, throw. I, I think they still have a session in between starts, though. Like, like no, a, no, a they throw between. I mean, I mean, pitch actually come in and pitch. Oh, actually, uh, right, in right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, they do the throwing. There's a routine there that you have to get ready for the next start. But, but anyway, um, but I'm careful as an old timer to be critical of things that are different today. The, the times are different. Um, you can't relate exactly in the mm-hmm. 2000s what it was like in the 1950s. Uh, but there are there are subtle changes, but some of the big obvious changes are the uh, how they staff or uh, pitching coaches and and now keeping stats and laptops on the bench and, and <laughs> right when you used to talk about the book on a hitter, it was all in your head. It's what you remember about this guy. Well, now they do the the numbers with the laptops and. Uh, uh, Larusa, I think, was one of the first managers to really uh, kind of live with a laptop during a ball game and looking at the stats of pitchers versus certain hitters and so forth. And so there's a lot more tweaking done in, in that uh, part of the game, and, and it's good. I mean, I don't, I don't say that's uh, it's bad, but um, but pitching still is the art of deception. That's a, that's the whole thing. You 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 can overpower a hitter sometimes, maybe a certain pitchers, but an overpowering hitter is is that's for just a few guys who can really have uh, Kershaw right now, and we're talking about the middle or toward the end of the 2014 season. Uh, he's got an earned run average of 1.4 something, I think. He's overpowering the hitter. Uh, that's that's pretty rare. Koufax yeah. could do it. Um, and if you Randy Johnson could do it um, on occasion on good good days. But um, they found an old scout card of mine, and the Dodger office did, and they sent sent me a an email copy of it, and it was by Andy High, an old time scout that was Mr. Ricky's top top scout. Andy High sent in a scout card on me when I was in the minors. I'd never seen it. And it said uh, Carl Erskine, he's 5'10 and a half, he's 165 pounds, throws right, hits right. Fastball, rated fastball, A+. plus. But he had a note out to side with movement. Hmm. That is so important that a fastball, they, they thought from my records that I threw somewhere in the 92 range, uh, I was I was in the in the low low. I didn't get to the mid 90s, but I was 92, 93 maybe. Especially my best years in '53 was was one of them. But it says fastball A plus, but the note to the side says with movement. Now guys can throw hard, but the ball to be unhittable has to move. If it's straight, 
And some guys can throw 95, but they don't get much movement. If they don't get that pitch in the right place, that's a home run or it's a well-hit ball. So um, pitching then from the standpoint of technique is deception but also movement. It doesn't have to right. move much because a round ball hitting against a round bat hitting a ball, it has to be precisely on the right spot in order to hit a line drive. Otherwise, you're going to pop it up or, or hit it down. <laughs> Sam, why do you think more foul balls go up than down? You got any idea? Hmm. Um, is it generally because the ball is coming at them spinning downward? No, it, it's because of movement. A good fastball, a good overhand three-quarter, high three-quarter fastball will have life to it, they call it. Now, life means it moves. It, it doesn't, it's not just fast and straight. And uh, teach, you can't teach movement much unless you're throwing a sinker or a cut fastball. Now, a cut fastball is a new pitch from my era. And it only moves uh, three or four inches. But think about that. Uh, a 93, nine, Rivera threw a cut fastball. And he, he defied an old saying in baseball that you can't win in the big leagues with one pitch. Right. <laughs> he, he, he threw the same pitch every time, and he had such control of it. And it moved about two or three inches. And uh, he, would, he, he probably has a record if they kept records. He's broken more bats because oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. left-hand hitter, he thinks the pitch is a good pitch to hit. The time he swings, it's on the handle, and it breaks, breaks the bat. Um, but that's movement, and that's that's the key to pitching. It's not velocity. Everybody likes velocity, and uh, broadcasters uh, now with a gun, everybody talks about ooh ninety eight, ninety ooh a hundred, hundred and three. Some guys can do that, you know. But, and 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 the one doing it, uh, the Araldis Chapman, uh, you know, who's oh, yeah. the most recent right, one to hit one hundred and three. That's some movement right there. Right. I watched uh, Chapman pitch, and he's not a refined spot pitcher. Believe me, he's a hard thrower, and he doesn't necessarily care where it is in the strike zone. <laughs> he, he, just, <laughs> he just pumps it in there, and believe me, uh, when, when a guy throws that hard and he gets movement beside, which uh, Kershaw probably doesn't throw quite that hard, but he, he, he gets it up there at 95. And, uh, but he also has a decent control, and he has a couple of pitches to go with it. Uh, he doesn't have an off-speed pitch, but he does have a, a hard curveball, a big one. And then he has he developed a slider that he now has, throws with good command. And, uh, boy, when he's got three pitches uh, and throw as hard as he does, uh, well, the proof's in the numbers. He's, he's pitched now practically a whole season. And I don't know how many innings that would be right now, but I'll bet you it's 250 at least. Yeah, and I'm he's sure. Allowed, he's allowed 1.4 runs per nine-inning game. Now, you know, you can't get much better than that. And, uh, no, he's, but he has, he has uh, I, I three pitches to get the over. Yeah, he's, he's probably the best pitcher in baseball. I mean, you know, you have Felix, uh, uh, Felix Hernandez, of course, is, uh, comes to mind. Um you know, Matt Harvey had one year and had the Tommy John surgery, so he still has a lot to prove. I mean, Clayton Kershaw has been in the league since he was 20 years old, 
um, Matt Harvey went to college and came out of there. But, you know, that's that's me talking as a Mets fan. Um, I don't want to make such a, a broad generalization uh, with this question, but uh, I still feel like I need to ask it. Would you say the art of pitching has been lost on a whole generation of, of pitchers? Do you think that this whole art of deception and, and the old school mentality of, of thinking about it like an art form, do you think that there's less and less pitchers who are approaching it that way? No, I, th- I think the pitching coaches over time have learned to teach better. I, th- I think there was, now the Dodgers were a great teaching organization in my era. Mr. Ricky was the mastermind behind some of the techniques, although he himself was not a pitcher. He was a catcher. Mm-hmm. But he did understand um, uh, aptitude. Uh, that was a great thing with Mr. Ricky. He, anybody knows raw talent. You go to a ball game and you see, you can tell the best kid that's out there. Just raw talent is, is obvious to see. What Mr. Ricky looked for was aptitude. Can this kid that's got raw talent, can he refine that? Can he embellish it? Can he... Uh, can he become a pitcher of finesse as well as a pitcher with raw, hard-throwing talent? He loved that in a young pitcher. In fact, I'm a living example of a kid that wasn't very big. I was very average size, but I had a terrific uh, arm. I threw, and the ball moved. And you know, as I said, I was in the in the low low 90s and uh, 92 or so, and but with movement. And then when Mr. Ricky had me in spring training and he showed me the rotation on an overhand curveball, I picked it up quick. And Mr. Ricky loved that. But what he really loved was a pitcher who could throw hard and who could throw an off-speed pitch. Now, the hardest thing to teach a hard-throwing pitcher is that taking something off of the pitch is good. It's just not, His mentality won't let him believe that that throwing something other than as hard as I can throw it is a good pitch. But that's pitching. Pitching is deception. And if you can throw a 92-mile-an-hour fastball and with the same motion, same rotation, same delivery, everything the same, but it's 88 and the hitter is ready for the 92, he's already committed while the ball's on the way, and now he... Now he, he either misses the swing or he hits a very weak ground ball someplace. And when you can throw that off-speed pitch, especially when you're behind in the count, when it's two balls and no strikes, 90% of the pitchers are going to throw a fastball because they got to throw something they can get over. And so most pitchers would not – I didn't say all pitchers. There are a few pitchers who are real pitchers who, when the hitter's setting on a fastball, they, th- they can throw him something else and get it over. Well, if you can throw an off-speed pitch when you're behind the count, three and one, three and two, uh, two and oh, uh, you, when you can get that over, and the reputation is there when you're pitching, let me tell you, you've got an edge on the hitter. He cannot set on the fastball. Now, I used to get three pitches over fairly good. I I had a good overhand curveball. I threw a three and two a lot. Uh, I threw a straight change that Mr. Ricky had taught me, uh, and I could get that over. And that is devastating to a hitter is to is to get a pitch that looks like a fastball, 
it rotates like a fastball. It's got kind of a ride to it. It's not a, it's not a slow ball with a hump in it. No, no. It's got to look like a fastball, act like a fastball, and not be a fastball. And that's that pitch, if I were pitching today, that would be one major change I would make in my pitching. They only allowed us, theoretically, to throw a an off-speed pitch when you were behind in the count. And that was that was how it was used. So we never threw it on the first pitch, or we never threw it when we were ahead in the count. I'd change that today. Because mm. everybody's power, everybody's throwing hard, everybody wants to hit uh, upper decks, and you can't do that with an off-speed pitch hardly. Uh, it, it's... It's too hard to time it, and I would throw it. I used to throw maybe in a nine-inning game. I might pitch 125 pitches or so, about 15 an inning average, and I'd throw maybe 10 or 12 off-speed pitches. Today, if I was pitching, I'd probably throw uh, out of 15 pitches in an inning, I'd probably four or five of them be off-speed because I think it's that effective. But... Um, but that's one of the changes I'd I thought if I'd pitch today, that's one of the changes I'd make in, <laughs> in how I pitch. Hey, I that's a long answer, buddy. Was, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say I wish we could, we could see you on the mound, uh, you know, to to make a cliche joke. Uh, the Mets could certainly use you. Actually, they're fine with pitching right now, but they they could if if you if you could uh, get you know 15 home runs and 85 RBIs, the Mets could really use you right about now. But anyway, not to uh, go on a Mets tangent. I know you got to get going. Obviously, we could talk about this uh, forever, and uh, obviously we cannot. Um, and so I'll, I'll end with this question. Who, who are some of your peers, similar era or otherwise, you've really enjoyed discussing pitching? Pitchers you're talking about? And maybe not necessarily. Yeah, other pitchers or even, even uh, just other position players who, who also oh. like to discuss pitching with you. Uh, who, who are some of the, the oh. ones that jump out to, uh, in your mind? Well, you know, you know who I room with Duke Snyder for probably ten or maybe eleven seasons, and Duke and I were like brothers. We we really bonded, and we were different personalities entirely. But believe it or not, Duke Snyder wanted to talk about pitching, hmm. and in rooming with Duke, we had a lot of conversations, and he wanted to pick my brain as a pitcher to help him as a hitter. And uh, he would often tell me and other pitchers on the bench to watch him. Uh, Duke had a ha- had a habit occasionally of turning his head. Uh, if you ever played golf, you know one of the things they say is keep your head down. <laughs> but if you raise your head, then your swing uh, doesn't hit the ball correctly. Well, that same thing in baseball. If if the uh, Al Campanis used to say a hitter turns his head is in hitting by memory. He last saw the ball when it was about halfway to the plate, <laughs> and his head kind of turned as he swung, and he's hitting from memory. Well, Duke used to ask the pitchers, and me especially, watch me, watch me. I just fouled off a pitch last time at the plate. I should have hit that ball in the upper deck, and I fouled it off. And, and I, 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 there's a reason I didn't hit that ball. Well, Duke wanted us to watch him. So he, he caused me to talk a lot about pitching, uh, and how to pitch, and how I would pitch to him, and so forth. So you say baseball is a slow game. You know, a lot of people think it, there's not much going on. There's so much going on in a baseball game. Uh, for guys that like to, because uh, observing things, wants to know, 
uh, how pitchers pitch to him and so forth. Um, he couldn't hit the high fastball when he first came up. And Allie Reynolds in the World Series a couple of times just ate Duke alive with high fastballs. Well, Duke, he could learn. He did learn. He learned to hit that high fastball. And uh, that's not an easy thing to do. But uh, Duke was a smart player, and but he worked at it. And uh, I'm just saying, baseball takes a lot of, uh, you know, uh, in the NFL and the, and the NBA, a player can come out of college and go right into the starting lineup of the big league team in football and, base, and basketball. You never see a first-round draft choice come right out of college and go in the starting lineup of a major league team. And the reason is there's too many refinements to the skills you have to do before uh, before you come into that level of play. Now, a good example is Koufax. Koufax got paid a bonus, and the rule was you couldn't option him to the minors. He had to stay on the big league team. So here's a kid off the Sandlots. Uh, actually, he was in college. But... Uh, Green, in terms of major league level baseball, thrust into the lineup as a 21-year-old or so, 22, Koufax. Now, the great Koufax, who was one of the best pitchers ever lived, his first five years, he was he was an under 500 pitcher. He was like 35 and 36 or something. He'd win one, lose one. He might pitch a two-hitter or he might not get out of the first inning. He didn't have the refinements, and Koufax's record would have been phenomenal if he had a couple of years in the minors and learned all the nuances of pitching. But he had to learn it. Uh, he was in. Uh, uh, he was learning on the job, and it took him until uh, his sixth or seventh year, sixth year probably. I played with Sandy five or six years, but he bloomed after about five years of being a mediocre pitcher because he had to fight, figure out how to pitch. And then he became, uh, of course, a Hall of Famer in, in probably five years, which nobody can do that. Yeah. Um, some people have said that uh, I've read a little bit about, um, and I, I, I'm forgetting the name, it might have just been Walter Alston, that not only did he not have that time in the minor leagues, but he, nece- he wasn't necessarily coached properly. What do you think about that? Well, I think that has validity because, uh, again, the pitching coach – on our team was uh, Clyde Sukaforth, a catcher, and later uh, was Becker, a catcher. Uh, and Koufax was very shy. And, uh, you know, let me tell you who the pitching coaches were really on the on teams of that era, the older pitchers. One of the best pitching coaches was Preacher Rowe. And he didn't necessarily hold uh, sessions to teach you just watched him, and then you asked him questions. So that's how Koufax had to learn to pitch. But he was very shy, and and he felt uh, Sandy's a very sensitive person. And we had 200 pitchers in the system of the Dodgers in those days, in the, at 26 farm teams, and each team had eight to ten pitchers on it. So there was there was a couple hundred pitchers in the system. And Koufax leapfrogged all of them. He never he never had to compete with any of the minor league pitchers to get to the big leagues because they had to keep him on the roster of the big club because they'd pay him a bonus. 
And so Sandy was very sensitive to that. He he felt guilty, I think, that that he leapfrogged all those young pitchers and got his uniform without ever throwing a pitch in the minors. Mm-hmm. That bothered Sandy. I, that's never been written, but I lived that with Sandy. I saw him and talked to him. But he never would ask questions, and he just was kind of quiet and kept to himself. And then he'd get in the ball game, and uh, he'd be wild. Uh, he, he was unhittable, but he couldn't throw strikes. <laughs> and so uh, uh, Koufax was a good example of why it takes minor league training uh, at some level for a couple of years at least uh, for a pitcher to come into the big leagues and have some of the refinements you need to uh, know how to hold a man on, uh, keep him from stealing, and there's a lot of things. How to feel your position, uh, how to make throws to the bases, uh, pickoff plays. There's all kinds of things besides pitching to the hitter that you have to learn. But control is the main thing with a pitcher. You've got to be able to throw strikes, and, and usually with more than one pitch. So... Uh, so although I'm way away from the game today, <laughs> I don't want to tell you I'm an expert on uh, baseball today. But what I can tell you is uh, one of the soon a few things haven't changed. A pitcher has to have movement on the ball, and he has to throw strikes. And, uh, and if you don't do those two things, uh, I don't care how hard you throw, uh, how big your curveball is, uh, you're not going to stay in the big leagues. But uh, you have to have at that level, you have to have control. Now, what is control? Throwing strikes? Not necessarily. It's throwing in the strike zone where you want to put it. I mean, it may be big as a teacup you're trying to hit. You don't just throw it down the middle. So there's there's a lot of refinements that, as I mentioned, Koufax did not get the advantage of learning until he struggled for five years in the major leagues. And then when he finally got his act together, uh, and then and they used and abused him. I mean, you you look at the innings uh, right now. His last uh, 1962 to 1966, 184. I think that had something to do with injury. The 1963, 311. 1964, 223. And then in 65 and 66, uh, 335.2 and 323. And um, it's just thinking about that time and what you know about Right. Think, think about is, the cortisone shots he was taking, right? I mean, what, what kind of, you know, compare compared to, you know, 1965 and 1966 and the 50s, what kind of medicine did you have uh, from start to start? You know, obviously it wasn't like that, but what changed between 50, let's say 55 and 1965? Well, of course, the the knowledge in so many ways. Uh, weight training was always discouraged uh, to pitchers. Don't build up any bulk in your arms, your shoulders. And so it was discouraged. Uh, we did our training running, leg training, strong legs, uh, and throwing uh, uh, throwing in between. And the other thing is we, only ha- we worked uh, from spring training to the end of the season, and then we went home. There was no off-season uh, program. There was no, uh, if you had an injury of some kind, you went home and, and just uh, spent three and a half, four months and came back to spring training. There was there was no program uh, to, for conditioning or throwing or rehab, anything in the off season. That's just the way it was. Uh, 
the season uh, you were there, and then, but now it's year-round. Uh, there's programs year-round. There's weight training. There's other kinds of conditioning. There's other kinds, especially if you have an injury. But uh, they know people know so much more now about muscle training and development and injury. Um, I had an arm injury, uh, pulled a muscle in my shoulder, and what you looked at it. They looked at your shoulder and it wasn't uh, swollen. It wasn't black and blue. It didn't bleed. Didn't have any bones sticking out. <laughs> so it looked at you like, well, it must be in your head. I don't see anything. It's obvious. Well, that was kind of the old way of looking at a pitcher's arm. I mean, the trainers in those days they weren't uh, trained. We had Doc Wendler was our trainer. He was an uh, osteopathic uh, doctor. And so he did have some medical background. A lot of trainers do not. They have their favorite kind of liniment and uh, rub downs and so on. But as far as understanding uh, injuries to an arm, uh, nobody did. And uh, the pitcher himself uh, didn't know how to condition himself uh, much more than throwing and learning control and so forth. But And there, here's another factor. Everybody likes to say, well, it's all about the money. That's right, it is. And today, when you've got a draft choice that uh, you've got 2 or $3 or $4 million invested in, you're not going to let him get abused. And if he's got an injury, get him out of there. Get him on mm-hmm. the disabled list. Get him rehabbed. Uh, that never happened in our day. Now, that doesn't mean that players aren't as tough today as they used to be. Yeah, but they were just handled different. When we had an injury, you didn't tell anybody. <laughs> you didn't want to get sent back to the minors. You just played with it and you pitched with it. I pitched with, uh, you know, not just me, a lot of guys had arm trouble, and, but it was your turn to pitch. And you, you didn't go in the trainer's room and say, you know, I, and now if you're a well-established pitcher and you had a problem, a blister or something, and you tell the manager, you say, I need a couple of days, Skip. Uh, maybe maybe i got to miss a turn. But that was rare. That was very rare. When your turn came up, you went to the post. Now, were we tougher than the guys today? No, we weren't. Owners in those days, and managers, they had all these players, the minors, and, and if you didn't do it, they'll get somebody else. But today, the owners got several million dollars invested in a, in a draft choice. Uh, he doesn't want this guy abused. He, he, he wants to save him. And... Um, so anyway, that's that's another major change, I think. Uh, what the uh, we were we were treated fine. I never felt abused in baseball. Mm-hmm. And the reserve clause, which kept me tied to the Dodgers forever, I never felt like a slave. I was so happy to be there, and so uh, privileged to be a major leaguer. So it never bothered me that I couldn't be uh, free to go to any club that wanted me, but. But that's uh, today now. The pitcher has, and the players have that privilege of actually selling their services to the highest bidder, and uh, so that's a that's a major change, also. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just absolutely fascinating to uh, talk pitching with you, and, and I uh, I certainly want to continue this conversation. I, I you know we had talked uh, so much about Brooklyn and so much about the air and the Dodgers, uh, and it's it's been. Absolutely fascinating picking your brain about this uh, specific subject and, and what was your livelihood 
And so, uh, of course, thank you very, very much. And, and as always, you're welcome back anytime. Well, Sam, you know, uh, I've got a birthday coming up. I'll be 88 years old in, in December of this year. Now, it kind of dates our conversation. But, but let me tell you something. I get up in the morning, as I did today, with Thanksgiving on my mind, uh, appreciate, uh, being appreciative. I always dreamed as a kid of just somebody saying he's a major league player. I mean, I got to play one of the great teams of all time. Uh, some of the greatest individuals of all time. Of course, Jackie Robinson was our centerpiece. But but I was a kid pitcher that got to go to New York City, the biggest stage in the world. The lights in the New York stage is the brightest. They're the brightest in the world. And I got to, to be a part of that. I'll forever uh, go to my grave uh, with gratitude for that. And... Uh, of course, I've been married 67 years to my high school sweetheart. I got to put that right up there with the with the rest of it. But but playing in New York City, playing in Brooklyn in that era, and I was a transition player too. I I moved to Los Angeles with the team when we had to move in '58. I got to pitch the opener in Los Angeles and beat the Giants. Incidentally, I had an edge on every team in the league except the Giants. I was 16 and 16 with the Giants, and I always wish I'd had one more win against the Giants, so I could have said I had all all the teams I had an edge on. But but to pitch in New York at that era in the 40s and 50s, um, I just um, I'm just blessed to do that. And so to this day, I still get mail from uh, people from uh, New York, Brooklyn, New Jersey, in that era, whose grandfather took them when they were 10 years old to see a ball game at Evans Field. I still get mail like that. And uh, how, how much how much can you get out of life uh, in one <laughs> in one lifetime? I've, I've got I've packed it pretty good. You absolutely have, and uh, a long life to you. Uh, continuing days ahead. Carl, thank you very, very much as always. And my pleasure. Best to you. Thank you very much, and uh, best to everybody out there. Thank you for listening, and have a great Friday. Take care. Great weekend as well.